Have you ever thought it's time to own my own business or I've outgrown my current firm and there's got to be a better way to serve my clients? Or perhaps I'm not growing as fast as I know I can and I need to learn more about the independent RIA model that I've been hearing so much about. Is it time for me to make that change? Hi, I'm John Sullivan, Head of Network Development at Dynasty Financial Partners, and this is the Independence Playbook Podcast. covered a few episodes as it relates to advisors transitioning to the fully independent model. And on this episode, we're going to focus on M&A. Today, I'm joined by Harris Spalch, who's the head of Dynasty's M&A and Capital Strategies Group. I'm pleased to have you here today, Harris. And so I think we're going to jump right in. Thanks, John. Great to be here. Well, Harris, we have, uh, we're talking to a lot of advisors, obviously, and one of the themes that's been coming up as these advisors are coming through the process and thinking about what it's going to look like once they're out is the whole concept around M&A. When this comes up with advisors, what do you tell them? How do you approach it uh, in terms of educating them? Yeah, it's becoming more and more a common theme, John, especially advisors that are you know, coming through the, the pipeline. They want to know more about M&A even before they launch their own firm. And and so what we try to do is, is kind of bifurcate the conversation really into, into three separate conversations, right? The first is, is how can you prepare for M&A pre-launch? Uh, how can you prepare for M&A post-launch? And then as you continue to grow and scale your business and in independence, how can you create a, a credible and repeatable M&A strategy to uh, attract advisors or other RIAs in order to grow and scale your business uh, inorganically. And, you know, we have checklists and playbooks for, for all of this stuff. But, you know, when it comes to uh, a pre-launch conversation, uh, some of the main items that we want to cover with advisors are, are really around three main things. Uh, the first and foremost, and this may, may seem, you know, simple to, to some, but, but complex to others is what should your entity look like? A lot of advisors uh, can, can structure their businesses at, as, as S-Corps or LLCs or, or C-Corps. Um, and, and depending on what their M&A strategy is or how they want to design their business, are they a sole proprietor looking to just uh, uh, go into independence on their own? Or do they have a bigger team where they want to succeed ownership over time or prepare for M&A? Um, you know, could lead to other types of, of, of structures. And so our goal is to help guide them in partnership with uh, good legal and tax counsel along the way. Um, and, and, and when you kind of decide what your, what your entity formation is, you got to think a little bit more deeply about what your operating agreement needs to look like, because that's really defines what, what your business looks like from a legal standpoint after you're out of the gate. And uh, having a, a, a really strong operating agreement when you launch is, is, is really going to help define your, your M&A strategy post-launch. And so uh, uh, some of the common questions that we ask advisors when they're thinking about uh, uh, coming together and, and putting pen to paper on an operating agreement are how, how do the owners want to interact with each other? What do they want to accomplish as business owners? Uh, what are the, the types of things that they want to accommodate each other on if, God forbid, something happened and, and their health was compromised or uh, if somebody died? Or uh, are they allowed to succeed part of their ownership outside of the RIA? Um, and, and so having the operating agreement address all of these things uh, at launch is, is really important. It's difficult to address every combination and permutation that may happen. Uh, after you launch your business. And so uh, it, it is quite common for advisors to make uh, certain amendments to their operating agreement to accommodate a situation or to accommodate M&A. 
Um, but it's, it's important to consider as much as you possibly can. And we try to leverage all of our experience in order to, to help, you know, RIAs. The, the other thing that we speak with advisors about, uh, and, and this ties into the operating agreement review, is, is, is share classes. Uh, a lot of advisors, um, you know, come, come to the table and think, well, maybe just one common share class is, is really all we need. Uh, but if you want to do M&A, it's, it's a prudent thing to, to think about different types of share classes. So, so one very common share class that most advisors have when they launch their firm are founder shares. And, and this could include things like having access to economic profits, upside in capital appreciation, and then ultimately control um, over, over key decisions of, of the firm. But as the firm grows and scales and uh, business owners want to succeed, a portion of the the uh, the ownership of the firm to to others to accommodate second gen third gen advisors or even potentially support staff that have been committed to the business is when you really need to think about uh, uh, granting advisor shares and and having even profit interests to help support and bring the the team together around common ownership of the of the RIA. So we try to advise on striking the right balance. Uh, you don't want to be too complicated out of the gate, but, but having a, a simple operating agreement that addresses some of these common themes are, are really important so that advisors can um, you know, interact with each other and, and also transact with, with confidence when they're approached with their first M&A opportunity. That's excellent, Harris. So a lot of uh, sort of on the technical side, guidance and support around legal structure, different share classes like you guided us through there. But as the date draws near and the team is getting ready to launch the firm, what are some of the common questions, the more practical their questions they're asking about M&A, and, and what are some of the answers that you give them? Yeah, well, you know, we, we try to encourage advisors who, who want to do M&A, try not to get over your skis before you even launch your, your business. Uh, but common questions come up. Uh, wh- what are they thinking in terms of, or what, are, what do we know about M&A valuations how can you know you accommodate an M and A strategy that that's repeatable over time? And so, um, when you put kind of the operating agreement and the share class discussion aside, you know the the proverbial investment banking answer around M and A valuations it, it really depends. It, it depends because uh, M and A valuations can can vary based on how you're approaching growth. Uh, in in certain instances. There could be uh, an advisor who comes to the, the RIA that wants to tuck in, and that tuck in can be a combination of things to the firm. It could be an advisor that just wants to, um, you know, surround themselves with, with other other like-minded folks, um, get access to better technology. Doesn't necessarily want access to equity, and so the most important thing to a a, a simple tuck in would be a, a defensible payout, right? So something that, that makes them, you know, at or better than, than where they currently are in addition to, you know, upgrades in, in technology and, and of course culture. But, you know, that that's probably, you know, scratches the surface in terms of, you know, where, where M&A begins because from, from then on in, it can get incredibly more complicated um, with, with what advisors want. Uh, some advisors will sacrifice payout for equity uh, other advisors will will sacrifice equity for for growth, and and so you know striking that right balance between different types of of considerations ultimately leads to what what valuations are in the market. Um, as you kind of go more more uphill, uh, more upstream with respect to complexities, um, there could be teams that are looking to depart a wirehouse and and move into uh, another RIA. 
And so what's, what's the right balance between uh, down payments of, of capital in need to support things like deferred notes, uh, transition bonuses, or, or things like that come into play? And for advisors or teams that want access to, to equity, um, you know, how, how can an advisor either be granted equity in a, in a very tax-friendly way when they, when they join an existing RIA or, or potentially earn into that equity uh, over time with a specific performance milestone or the types of things that we talk about, which again, play into, into uh, valuation. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, it should be no surprise to everyone listening on the line that uh, larger firms are uh, hopefully more scalable, more durable, but, but ultimately more profitable. So you, you definitely see a correlation out there between size and, and valuations. But, um, you know, post-deal uh, expectations, you know, play, play into all different types of combinations that, that lead to valuation outcomes. And, and you also see, just to, just to add to that, John, um, structure can, can play a significant component. I, I touched on it before, um, but, you know, advisors are, are used to receiving uh, a payouts and, and capital when they move amongst different, different wire houses. And, and by moving to independent owning equity in, in a firm um, to align with other partners at the firm really give you the ability to participate in the upside. But, um, you know, for better or for worse, you know, we've seen a lot of deals happen where, where advisors aren't necessarily granted the full amount of, of equity at launch. Um, what's, what's more common is to establish fundamental milestones, whether they're based on uh, a transitionable revenue or, or growth targets in order to uh, a trigger additional equity for uh, teams that are that are joining existing RIAs, and then, you know, for 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 RIAs that are transacting either with other RIAs or aggregators or integrators or, um, you know, whatever their strategic objective is, you know, you, you see a, a more professional investor approach the market with with capital, with structure, um, and 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 the structure could not only be built into what the outcomes are based on growth, but also uh, in terms of you know, the type of equity that's actually granted to advisors as, as part of the, the transaction. A- at the end of the day, um, you know, culture is most important. And, and so you can, you can think of all different ways to, to value firms and what the, you know, headline multiple is versus what the realized multiple is or, or what the discounted multiple is. But if, if you don't have a sound culture where uh, an existing advisor feels like they can flourish, uh, none of this really matters. And so when we're working with advisors, particularly on the sell side, you know, we, we want to make sure that they are having conversations and moving ahead with other like-minded advisors where, where they think they can grow their business. So as we come through this process and the team, obviously you're, you're right, you can't get out over your skis. We always talk about day one, which is really to establish the initial RIA, get that up and running so that it's sort of a viable enterprise and you actually have advisors you can recruit advisors to, you know, a, a very strong platform. But what about capital needs? So the advisors are going to say, do I need capital at the ready as soon as I launch? Is it something that I worry about after the fact? How, how do you address sort of the capital question at launch? Yeah, well, look, um, if you're looking for capital at launch, you got to have a, a valid use case, right? And, and so some of the valid use cases that we see are, are firms that, that want sleep at night money. You're starting a brand new business. Uh, if a platform is offering you capital uh, and it's, it's, it's a reasonable cost and it has a, a reasonable payback mechanism, why wouldn't you take it? And, and so we encourage firms to take capital when they're, when they're looking to launch into independence. 
uh, because you don't know what's going to happen. And, and firms that don't necessarily have a very strong liquidity profile, uh, when they launch value capital, especially if it has fair payback terms. Um, but it can extend well beyond that, John. I mean, firms that, that want to have a, a robust M&A strategy or are looking as a move into independence as a potential de-risking event for some of the senior principals of the firm that are using the transition to independence as a means for uh, creating succession amongst next-gen advisors, also look for capital. And, and so how do you come up with, with an effective way to introduce capital into an RIA, allowing senior advisors to take capital out of the business at launch and, and potentially succeed um, ownership to, to second gen advisors, um, you know, capital plays a, an integral an integral part of the equation. And so, so some of the, the capital solutions that we've seen um, really kind of run the gamut in terms of, uh, you know, you know, the types of solutions that are there are out there. I mean, broadly speaking, the market has, has really warmed up to the wealth management industry, the independence movement. And so there are a lot of different flavors of, of capital out there. So Firms that are moving into independence certainly need to be prudent um, with with their selection of, of who is going to be their capital provider. But on the on the simplest side, you know we see we see term debt and and bank debt uh, uh, being available for advisors. I think because the industry is warmed up to these unsecured businesses being incredibly sticky with with clients and cash flows. Um, banks are becoming much more comfortable with with underwriting these types of businesses, especially you know even even ones that are that are launching onto a platform because of uh, how sticky these these relationships are. And so um, while while some advisors are adverse to leverage, we we encourage firms that are looking for some startup capital or sleep at night money to take some term debt, especially if if the terms and the of the capital have fair prepayment terms, um, but. You know, for firms that are looking for a more significant chunk of, of capital, uh, term debt or bank debt may not get you there. And, and so there are alternative ways to access capital. Uh, some of the types of things that we've seen are uh, revenue purchases. So, so the opportunity for an investor to come in instead of underwriting the business uh, uh, from, a, from a bottom line standpoint, underwriting the top line or revenues in exchange for capital is something that, that's very common. As, as well as almost institutionalizing your business out of the gate when you launch your firm uh, with, with an outside minority equity owner. Uh, a lot of times having an institutional investor come in, whether it's a platform or a family office um, or, or just a, a third party that has a relationship with the, with the senior management team is a great way to institutionalize your business from the get-go. Uh, we see, we've seen all of those scenarios play out very well. And, and if you think about it, for a firm that, that is looking to uh, institutionalize their business, thinking ahead around uh, uh, M&A and, and inorganic growth, having an institutional investor uh, invest in your business out of the gate is a great way to really validate your business model, validate the management team, and, and at the same time also provide uh, uh, institutionalized backstop support when when you're going to get additional debt capital to support your first M&A trade. So uh, there is a little bit of circularity there, John, but it's, it's, it's what we've seen is, is, is an influx of, of capital participants in the space. And, um, you know, we, we try to work with advisors to, to optimize their balance sheet to deploy capital effectively. 
a lot of good information there, Harris, especially as it relates to some of the technical aspects of uh, launching the new firm, the different capital uh, capabilities that are out there. And clearly, you know, depending on where the advisor is coming from, they're going to need a lot of technical and legal advice on, on some of those particular uh, strategies. So let's kind of switch gears here as we wind it up, Harris. What are, you know, when you talk to advisors, there's a lot of thoughts uh, and a lot of information in the marketplace. What are some of the misperceptions that advisors have about M&A in general? Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy out there right now, John. It's been crazy for a long time. I mean, despite the, the deal activity you read about, it, it feels like deals are getting done every week. And, and they are um, because our industry is incredibly fragmented. And, and just to, to lay out some, some anecdotes, I mean, using round numbers, if there are 20,000 RIAs out there, and I think we all know that, that the number is a little higher than that, um, there are only 365 days in a year. So that means it would take 55 years to consolidate the industry. But at the same time, there are new RIAs be, being created every week. So you think about that, John. I, I can't. I can't. I don't know how, how many years it would take to consolidate. But the, the reality is it's, it's just a, a very um, a robust market right now. The, the fact that you have uh, a high degree of fragmentation, um, you know, strong recurring cash flows, an aging advisor base uh, uh, looking for uh, some type of, of succession creates a tremendous opportunity. And, and you see it um, with, with respect to how much buyer demand there is out there, whether it's RIAs, integrators, aggregators, uh, uh, professional investors, U.S. firms, non-U.S. firms. Um, you know, it's, it's clearly a, a, an industry that's ripe for consolidation. It reminds me a lot of, of what the, the banking industry looked like in the early 90s. And, and recently I was talking with a, a private equity professional. He was telling me that the only other industry he's seen as fragmented as the RIA space is the HVAC industry, which is I thought was kind of interesting. But you know, getting back to your question around misperceptions, M&A doesn't happen overnight. Uh, it takes time. You know, and sometimes deals that look good on paper might not work if, if the culture isn't there or the terms evolve or potentially you could be working on a transaction and and some type of, of press release hits about the buyer or about the seller that you weren't expecting and it calls off the deal. Um, so so you have to have a lot of patience with with M&A um, and, and deals that, you know, you know, warm up um, may not get done for quite some time because of an extenuating circumstance that's just out of your control. And so uh, it, it's really important for firms that uh, want to do M&A to be patient, to be disciplined, um, and and to have access to capital so that when you're ready to move forward on an opportunity that you're not slowing down the process because you can't find a capital partner. Because, you know, in my opinion, inertia kills M&A deals. And, and so you need to be able to uh, come up with a repeatable process uh, that makes sense for your business. You stay disciplined to that process um, and, and you have a capital partner by your side that understands your process and, and believes in, in the management team. Um, and, and last but not least, you know, a lot of the advisors that we speak to sometimes try to do too much, right? You're, you're in independence, you're doing it yourself. Uh, maybe you're working with a, a variety of different partners to help support and grow your firm organically, but it, it's really hard to do M&A on your own. And so, um, and maybe I'm being a little selfish here, John, but uh, it's, it's important to hire an investment banker to help you. 
Um, whether you're considering an acquisition or an ultimate exit, investment bankers are incredibly skilled at deal making, uh, which may include modeling, valuation, negotiation, structuring, and, and they know the buyer and seller landscape incredibly well, which, which can hopefully give a, any CEO an incredible amount of leverage through educating them on the do's and don'ts and, and also closing with confidence. A lot of great information today, Harris. I really appreciate your time. That's all we have for today. So, you know, again, thanks for joining me. Thanks, John.